0: Good evening, welcome to the McEwen Hall. Um, I'm Tim O'Shea, uh, principal of the university, and it really gives me enormous uh, personal pleasure to introduce the Right Honorable Gordon Brown, MP, who will tonight give his Gifford Lecture on the Future of Jobs and Justice. Before I go further into, into, into introduction, I've got two pieces of housekeeping. Um, as is normal with the Gifford lectures, the Reverend uh, Brian Smith, Bishop of Edinburgh, will be facilitating a discussion about this lecture in the University Chaplaincy in Bristow Square uh, tomorrow at half past five, and you're all very welcome. At the end of the lecture, uh, Gordon will leave the hall for a few minutes and then return to sign copies of his new book. To facilitate this, it would be appreciated that if you don't want to stay for the book signing, you might leave. Uh, <laughs> Could I mention this point uh, that Gordon did not write his recent book, Beyond the Crash for Profit? All the author's proceeds from the book go to the very excellent Piggy Banks Kids Charity, and and that's what we'll be doing with the fee for his lecture tonight, too. (laughs) Gordon is well known to you all, um, and I will just briefly summarize his political career. Following a detached retina as a result of a blow to the head in a school rugby match, he spent a number of years in and out of hospital. During his very long recuperation, he decided uh, to abandon early dreams of a career in professional sport for a life of public service. He became an MP in 1983 at the very young age of 32. In 1997, he became chancellor of the Exchequer. In June 2007, he became prime minister. And in May 2010, he resigned as leader of the Labour Party. He remains MP for Cicordy and cowden Beath. This university is immensely proud of Gordon, and it's for the following reasons. He came here at 16, the youngest fresher since 1945. He edited the university student newspaper and had many a run-in with my predecessors and with the establishment of the university as a result of his extensive political campaigning. He exposed the university's investments in apartheid South Africa, and his relentless campaigning led Edinburgh to disinvest. To the university's establishment's mounting fury, seeing a loophole in the regulations, he masterminded the election of the first student rector, Gordon Wills, and one year later, he became the second rector after an energetic campaign supported by canvassers calling themselves the Brown Sugars. Despite his campaigning interests and his work as rector of the university, and that's chair of our governing body, he remained a focus student and received a first class honors degree in history followed by a doctorate. His first job after graduating was as a lecturer for the Workers' Educational Association. So now it gives me enormous pleasure to invite Gordon to give his lecture, after which he will take questions. Please.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for that, that very kind introduction. Thank you. Can I, can I say, first of all, what a, a real pleasure it is to give the Gifford Lecture here in Edinburgh University's McEwen Hall. I, I was uh, not only a student here, but for a brief time, uh, a lecturer here, and I know that this university stands for rationality, objectivity, impartiality, the pursuit of truth, the search for knowledge, all the qualities I had to leave behind when I went into politics. <laughs> I I started here, as uh, uh, the principal said, uh, at the age of 16. Uh, Within a day of arriving here, I wasn't at the university. I was actually next door in the Royal Infirmary because I'd had this rugby injury. And I spent the next uh, few months uh, in and out of uh, hospital uh, having uh, a series of uh, eye operations. Uh, And I discovered something very good about the National Health Service. Uh, I uh, not only found that the National Health Service was free of charge. But every night at 9 p.m., uh, when I was just 16, a lady came round with a trolley offering us drinks. We could have beer, wine, whiskey. <laughs> and I, I knew the health service was free, but free beer and free wine uh, was quite an innovation. Uh, there for you at the point of need. I, I came to university uh, in Edinburgh, obviously uh, at the age of 16 and, and very young indeed. And I came from a town, Kirkcaldy, which is the home of uh, Adam Smith and not far away. Uh, And I felt rather like uh, what Mark Twain said about when he went from uh, his uh, protected Presbyterian uh, boyhood uh, in a a rather quiet town and ended up in a frontier town in Nevada, and there he found that uh, all the excesses of gambling and drink and parties and everything else. And Mark Twain said, this was no place for a Puritan, and I did not long remain one. This uh, university uh, has done a great deal for me, but also a great deal for thousands of people, uh, not only in this country, but uh, around the world. And some of you may have heard the story of uh, Field Marshal Montgomery. Field Marshal Montgomery was addressing his troops uh, just before the Battle of Alamein in 1944. And Field Marshal Montgomery, uh, as you will see from the history books, was not a modest man. Uh, when he was asked who the three greatest generals in history were, he said the other two were Napoleon and Alexander the Great. And he was addressing his troops just before the battle. And he was asking them, what's the most important thing you have? And he went round the different troops. And the first one said, our guns. The second one said, the air cover we've got. The third said, the tanks. And he said, no, he said, the most important thing you have is you. And if that's true of armed forces, that is even more true of a university. A university is made up of its students, its staff, and all those people who serve the university Uh, In every different capacity, the university is its people. And I'm very proud to be associated with the history of Edinburgh University and to be very much part of its future, uh, where you have already raised 350 million pounds from a huge campaign led by your principal. And I think you should be very proud of his achievement. Uh, Now, I've had a period of reflection, Uh, you might say uh, involuntary reflection, (laughs) courtesy of the British people. Uh, I I did go to some night classes on communication skills. I I did do a course in public relations management. I I learned how to switch on and off a microphone, (laughs) uh, which which has has, has been of great use to me. Uh, When I I came into Edinburgh University, when I came a few months ago, I I met uh, one of the servitors who had been there when I was there, and he said to me, it's very good of you, Mr. Brown, he said, you came to speak to us when you were on your way up, and now you've come to speak to us <laughs> on, on your way down. And I felt, I felt very much uh, like the story of the, uh, the Scottish actor who goes to uh, Hollywood and then arrives back in Scotland uh, and he's telling a friend of his what has happened. He said, did you know I went to Hollywood and I, I, I won an Oscar? And the guy said, never heard that at all. He said, do you know that our film was made uh, into uh, one of the best-selling books and I was top of the American book charts. And the guy said, never heard you did that, he said. He said, did you know that it was made into a musical and we went to Broadway? He said, no, he'd never heard that. He said, did you know that that musical flopped so badly that I've had to come back here? He said, I have heard that. (laughs) I I, I want to uh, talk this evening uh, about uh, three related ideas. The first is that we now have global problems that can only be addressed by global solutions. This is unique. We have problems that can be categorized only as global now, and we need global solutions for them. I want to argue, secondly, that we need global institutions that are fit and adequate for the time. And I'm not speaking, I may say, about the International Monetary Fund. (laughs) And thirdly, we need to underpin the development of our new global society, because it is global, uh, by a global ethic that makes sense of our responsibilities to each other. And I want to start with two stories that come to the time just after the Second World War. In 1946, uh, just after the war in France, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, uh, Arthur Kessler, and André Moreau, four great French intellectuals and one intellectual who was staying in, in Britain, they met together to discuss what they were going to do in the light of the Cold War. And many of you will know the work of Albert Camus, who wrote The Plague, The Stranger, who wrote uh, The Myth of Sisyphus, who wrote The Rebel, and regarded as an existentialist. And Camus said to Sartre and to the others, shouldn't we admit that we are all responsible for the loss of moral values. This is 1946. If we, he said, who are descended from niche and from historical materialism were to admit that we got it wrong when we said there were no such thing as moral values, and we said to people that there were such values and then said we would do our best to further them, then would this not, he said, give people hope for the future? This is in the aftermath of the Second World War, and look forward then to 1948, two years later. Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the deceased president of the United States of America, is asked to chair what became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Convention. And she is asked to chair a group of political leaders who want to frame, in the light of the Holocaust as well as the tragedies of the Second World War, a convention that would Guarantee the human rights of every individual. And they brought people together from all over the world, and they got the politicians from the East and the West, from the Cold War countries, behind the Iron Curtain, from America, they had from India, China, many, many countries represented. And they found, ironically, that as a political committee, they could agree on the detail of a charter, a declaration of human rights, but they could not agree on why these rights were important. They could agree on the need for listing the rights, but they couldn't agree on the purpose that lay behind them. They could agree that they would have this Convention of Human Rights, but only as long as they didn't have to agree on what its rationale was. And so we have the Declaration of Human Rights, the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights set out in 1948, setting out the rights against torture and everything else. But at the same time as they convened the political committee, they convened a group of philosophers who came together at the same time. And these philosophers were asked what they saw as the basis of human rights. What they saw, if you like, as the foundation of a global society. And so Gandhi wrote in from India. Uh, you had uh, Teilhard de Chardin, the philosopher and theologian, theologian writing in. You had uh, Muslim, uh, you had Sikh, you had Hindu philosophers. And they all wrote in, and you can see the papers and what they had to look at and what, about what each other said. And then how the philosophers committee that was formed tried to agree in a conclusion. And if you look at it, what actually happened in 1948 was that, yes, it was difficult because of the Cold War to agree on what was the source of rights. Was it natural law? Uh, Was it a Marxist conception of, uh, of human nature and of rights? But behind that debate, there was a general understanding that they called a common denominator, that they could agree that there were rights if they were matched by responsibilities in our society. So instead of coming to the conclusion that they would have a declaration of human rights. It seems to me from reading their work that they wanted to talk about a global society based on rights but also on responsibilities too. And that's why I say the theme of my talk this evening is first of all that there are global problems that need global solutions. Secondly, that we need global institutions that work so we can solve these problems. And thirdly, that what they tried in 1948 to create a global ethic is an even more important task now than ever before. Now, why do I say that we're in a new world where there are global problems that need global solutions? Not just national problems or common problems, but global problems that are intrinsically uh, related to the interdependence of our world. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, The situation we found only two or three years ago when we had the crisis in the financial system. And I went to a meeting of the European uh, heads of government. Uh, and it was held just after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the financial firm in America. And at that meeting, we had every member of the eurogroup Germany, France, Italy, and everyone else there. Uh, and uniquely, they had invited Britain. And this was the first meeting that had been held of leaders of the Eurogroup at any time since the Euro had been created. And around that table, people were saying, as you may remember them saying, this is an Anglo-Saxon problem. This is an American problem. These are mortgage debts in America. These are American banks that are falling. If you, Britain, have been so stupid as to get caught up in that and it's an Anglo-Saxon problem, it's certainly not a European problem. And I said to them at the meeting, I said, look, this subprime mortgage, two trillion of subprime mortgage, huge amount of money, these securities that have been sold in America, I said, you don't understand that half of these have landed up in Europe, that European banks, Irish banks, French banks, German banks, Greek banks, British banks, they have bought these subprime securities and they've now got worthless assets on their balance sheets. And so half the subprime that was the problem that started the crisis uh, and uh, the the lower valuation of houses then made them utterly worthless for many, many companies had arrived in Europe uh, and it wasn't an Anglo-Saxon problem at all, it was a global problem. We had global flows of capital around the world because we have the free flow of capital as well as the global sourcing of goods and you couldn't deny the fact that if one part of the world was affected by this, the whole of the world uh, was going to see some impact. This was a global problem, not just an American problem and it could only be dealt with by a global solution because look at what happened in the last two weeks. You've had this argument around the world. How do you protect banks against future financial failure? All of us know that the security of our money, savings, pensions, depends on trust in our banking institutions. And for that trust to exist, these banks have got to have capital. They've got to be able to withstand the losses that may be incurred in a period of a financial crisis. And now the debate around the world is what are the capital requirements that each bank has got to have? And so the Swiss are saying 18%, that is capital to risk-weighted assets. Some people in America are saying 7, 8, 9 or 10%. Britain had banks two weeks ago, some of them threatening to leave the country if they didn't get as low a capital ratio as was necessary. Some going to Hong Kong, Singapore, to America. Of course, the only two that couldn't say they were leaving were the ones that are actually owned by the government, and it was rather difficult for them to leave leave the country. So you've got this situation where the crisis was a global financial crisis. The solution can only be found in there being global standards for the future. Us finding a way to monitor the flow of funds around the world And at the same time finding a way to have common standards that banks have got to follow, otherwise the good will be undercut by the bad and the bad by the worst, and of course it will be a race to the bottom. So I mean in financial services and in the way we run our economy, we have now got global problems based on our interdependence, they are not just national problems or common problems that each country faces, they are global because we are interconnected, entangled with each other. And you cannot solve the problem of a financial crisis or banking without there being global. That is, internationally uh, agreed, uh, globally coordinated solutions to the problem. Now take the second issue that we've had to deal with in the last two or three years, climate change. I was present at the Copenhagen conference when we had to make a decision about a climate change framework for the future. Uh, And I knew it was going badly because you were in a hall roughly like this. Uh, and the Danish Prime Minister was chairing the conference, and he came to the conference to assume the chair, went up to the rostrum, and immediately one delegate from the floor uh, proposed a motion that he not be allowed to chair the conference. It was quite a difficult moment for international cooperation, particularly so since the delegate who was proposing it If he proposed it for his own prime minister in his own country, given the civil rights of that country, he would have ended up in prison. So here we had an international conference starting without even agreement. 192 countries sitting there represented, and no agreement even on the chair of that conference. And it was very difficult from then on to make sensible decisions. But what happened there shows that you have a global problem, that is pollution, that is environmental Uh, decay, that is uh, climate change, whatever the scientists disagree on, they do agree that this is a problem that affects every, every country. But what we couldn't get, despite all the hours of talking, uh, was a global answer. We couldn't get an agreed framework. We agreed on national emissions targets for each country. We agreed on transparency so that they'd be under surveillance for what they did. We agreed on funding for the developing countries for mitigation and adaptation. But we couldn't agree on an overall framework, whether it be in a treaty or in a resolution, that would underpin the development of environmental policies for the future. And what's the result? That even when we have a nuclear disaster in Japan, and even when we have the most volatility we've had in oil prices over the last year, we cannot get a climate change agreement to reduce carbon emissions worldwide. And we are paying for the absence of an agreement because the investment we need in renewables, like energy, uh, wind power, wave power, uh, solar power, is not going to happen as long as people don't know what the carbon price is and as long as people don't have a sense about what the stability of the new energy regime, the low carbon regime, will be in the future. Global problem. No global solution. But that global problem will exist until we find a global solution. And let me give you a third example before I draw a conclusion to this this point. Inequality around the world. I've long been interested uh, and felt common cause with the problems that people in Africa uh, have to face. And this university has got an incredibly uh, great tradition in helping and working with different countries in Africa, many of whom who are leaders in Africa studied here at Edinburgh University uh, in the uh, pre-liberation days. But you know, Africa has got 15% of the population of the world, and it will soon have 20% of the population of the world, and there will be 25% of the young people of the world will be in Africa. So this continent will house one in every four of the world's young people. But if I'm right, Africa does not have 25% of the world's wealth, it's got 1% of the world's wealth. If I'm right that even with the great mineral resources that Africa has in gold and in oil and in plutonium and other uh, sources of uh, raw materials, it's only got about 1% of the world's manufacturing. Uh, And if I'm right also, it's only got about 1% 1 of the world's income. So here's the great continent of Africa, faced with a a problem as a result of the global flows of goods and services and the global flows of capital and the result previously of colonial uh, uh, and and, and imperial domination, of having a large block of the population of the world but a very limited amount of wealth and income. And that problem, in my view, is a global problem because if we cannot solve the problems of Africa, as we are finding now with North Africa, then people will migrate in thousands and then in hundreds of thousands, from Africa to Europe in particular. And if we do not take action to deal with the problems of Africa, then we will find, as people have found in Somalia and in other parts of Africa, that Al-Qaeda can build terrorist cells that can feed on the discontents, particularly of young people. And if we do not act on the problems of Africa, then the world will seem incredibly unfair to the 80 million young people who are unemployed around the world at the moment and don't see in Egypt or Tunisia or in Libya or in other countries in the region of the north and more so in many of the countries of the south that their aspirations can be met by the opportunities that are available to them at the moment. So here is a global problem because it affects us all but we don't have any way of solving it through bilateral or unilateral action The world would have to work together in a way it hasn't done, even on the Millennium Development Goals and Debt Relief, if we are going to ensure that there are jobs in Africa, opportunities for young people, and these great unfairnesses and inequalities uh, are diminished. So I've given you three examples uh, of what I believe is a category of problem that we now must call a national problem. We used to have local problems with local solutions. Edinburgh would have its own uh, authority running affairs. Almost all the problems in Edinburgh would come to that local authority or to the private sector in Edinburgh. But then we found that problems couldn't be solved just in Edinburgh alone. We had to have national government doing things like transportation, health and safety, doing all sorts of things uh, that uh, they hadn't done previously, including welfare in the end uh, and responsibility for employment uh, opportunity. But just as that happened in the 19th century when we moved from local to national forms of government, uh, underpinned by nationalism itself, we've now moved in the 21st century to a category of problem that is so distinctly global that you cannot solve it simply by America doing this, or the European Union doing that, or a few bilateral, trilateral, or quadrilateral relationships with different countries. You need global institutions that work to solve these problems. So global solutions from global problems, and you need global institutions that work well. Now, in the 1940s, in the wake of the Second World War, we created the IMF, the World Bank. We created GATT, which became the World Trade Organization. We created the United Nations, uh, principally, of all the institutions. And we had the Marshall Plan, which increased employment in Europe as a means of its reconstruction. And they were dealing with national economies. They were dealing with national flows of income and capital. They were dealing with the national sourcing of goods, because most of the goods we bought were produced in the end, even although the raw materials came from elsewhere in our own country. Now, the international institutions built for the 1940s find it difficult to deal with global flows of capital, global sourcing of goods, and the global issues that I've just described. So we will need, as a result of the financial crisis, our failure to solve climate change, what's happening on terrorism and the need for security, what's happening in the inequality and poverty that exists right around the world, we will need in the next few years to build global institutions that can uh, deal with these global problems. And I can give you an example, why is there no organization that can bring people together instead of having 192 people in the room, without any executive, without any pre-planning that is significant in the sense that it's constitutionally agreed by different countries beforehand on the environment. We need, and if in 1945 they had known there was a climate change problem, there would have been an environmental organization. We had to create the G20 in the financial crisis. Now we need something that is not just the G20, but something that represents all the other 192 countries through a constituency system. So we need international institutions that work if we're going to solve the problems that I've just described, financial instability, climate change, poverty and inequality, and I could add terrorism and insecurity, and simply trade and growth around the world. But if these institutions are going to work, uh, and if we are going to be able to solve the problems I'm talking about, then we will need to underpin what we do by something akin to what I talked about when I discussed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We will need to underpin the development of new institutions by some kind of global ethic, because the forces of nationalism are very strong, and the forces of vested interest that don't want global action uh, to uh, make accountable uh, the work of companies or other people are very strong. And protectionism is a very important sentiment. And you've just seen in the last two years in every country how people are retreating into national shells. Two years ago, we had global cooperation at a very high level. Now we have countries retreating into national shells, deciding that the best way is to solve the problem on their own and not necessarily to have the degree of international cooperation we had in the past. And that is not going to be the way that we're going to build the growth, the jobs, and the security we need for the future. So, how do you? create or think of uh, the possibility of creating some ethic that can underpin institutions. National institutions are underpinned by a strong sense of national identity. In some cases in the 19th century nationalism became a difficult force as well as a powerful force uh, and that is true in this century in different countries as well. So how do you underpin the institutions that are going to be the only solutions to the problems that we've just described? I think we'll need the same kind of debate that we had in the 1940s about what underpins the society that we are developing. And I think we should uh, have this widespread consultation to talk to people about what they mean uh, by the possibility of a global uh, citizenship that is allied to our national citizenship. And I think we'll find that you can argue for global cooperation that I'm talking about uh, from historical evidence and a historical approach. You can argue that in the last two centuries, we have made huge advances because people have seen strangers of the past as neighbors of the present. And so 200 years ago, a slave was regarded as outside society. And then people decided that everybody had the right as a human being to be a member of that society uh, and that there should be no such thing and slavery should be abolished. And then women's rights. Uh, and then rights of children and then rights of the disabled and then rights, of course, of gays and lesbians right throughout the two centuries. People who have been seen as different and as strangers and as outside our moral compass have been brought inside uh, that uh, compass. But of course, the progress is not linear because we've had to deal with wars and Holocaust, genocide, uh, and therefore you can't say that automatically history tells us that this global ethic is possible. And you can look at science and all the great advances in science in the last few years. We now have a great deal more evidence about human nature, that an infant is born with a sense of uh, justice, uh, that the brain has got moral intuition and moral reasoning, and these are compartments of our brain, that the evolution of the human species has been about the evolution of cooperation as well as the evolution uh, of uh, natural uh, selection that we write about and talk about so much. And you can find evidence from science that suggests that it is possible for us to cooperate around the world with other human beings. And then you look at philosophy itself. And this university, through the Scottish Enlightenment, pioneered so much of what we now understand to be moral uh, philosophy in the 21st century. You can argue that human beings have a capacity uh, that is quite unique to reason and to deliberate uh, in an attempt to solve problems. And you can argue with Rawls, John Rawls, the great philosopher, that out of that reasoning, under what he called a veil of ignorance, in a thought experiment about what you would would like if you were signing a social contract but were unaware of the position that you were going to be in, uh, you would decide that uh, you would uh, advance the liberties of every individual and that inequalities should be in the interest of the least fortunate. In other words, you can sign a social contract that would actually be the equivalent uh, to a global ethic. But Rawls, of course, has difficulties because he wants to exclude religion uh, from that public sphere. And you can argue also that our ability uh, to think of a global ethic depends on our capacity, not just to reason, but our capacity for empathy with each other. If you think of the amazing events of the last uh, 30 30 years, and if you think of what you thought when you saw that child in Ethiopia, uh, who's been uh, uh, featured many times since, that led to band aid and then to the huge uh, humanitarian appeal to deal with famine in Africa. If you think of the uh, thoughts that you had when that picture of that girl standing against a tank in Vietnam uh, and uh, uh, hit by napalm, uh, you then think of what our instinctive reaction is, our capacity for empathy with people who have uh, and are in difficulty. We feel the pain of others. We believe in something bigger than ourselves. And however distantly it is, we feel that we have an empathy with people who are in difficulty. And that is potentially a basis for a global ethic. And so too, of course, are all the religions of the world. Because what they have in common, despite the focus that is usually on what they have that uh, divides them, is that they all subscribe in the end to what you might call a golden rule. uh, Do to others as you would be done by. If you go through the Hindu religion, if you go through the Sikh religion, Judaism, if you go through Islam, if you go through all the major religions, each of them have a central tenet about our responsibilities to each other, desire for your brother uh, what you would desire for yourself. All the different religions have something approaching a golden rule. So it seems to me that we ought to think of the world in this way. There are global problems that need global solutions. These cannot be solved as problems without building uh, capable and effective global institutions for the future. The institutions we built in the 1940s won't solve the next crisis. Uh, The institutions we built in the 40s couldn't solve this crisis, uh, the financial crisis, and the climate change problems uh, on their own, and in the case of climate change, didn't solve the problems. If we are to have institutions that are international, that are strong enough, to withstand the difficulties that we face, and that is the power of nationalism, the power of vested interests, the power of uh, protectionism, which is very much alive in many of the countries of the world, then our institutions that are international need to be underpinned by more than simply nations or elites of nations cooperating with each other. They need to be underpinned by the citizens of these countries seeing it in their interests, whether from uh, historical uh, approaches or whether from philosophical approaches, to cooperate with each other. But my final point is there's something completely new that has happened over these last few years, and that is our ability to communicate instantaneously with each other around the world. The revolution that the Internet has brought about means that we know what is happening in different countries more quickly, that repression can exist, but not forever because it will be exposed by the Internet, but more than that, people are able to organize across frontiers in a way that has never happened before at a grassroots level. So you have one organization at the moment, Avaz, A-V-A-A-Z, which now is boasting today, it is more than eight million members around the world in each different society arguing for change. If you think of Philippines, 1990s, the text was used to assemble people to protest against corruption and the Philippines government fell. It was called the coup de texte. If you think of Serbia, when Milosevic fell, that was people organizing in a new way, using the internet as part of their organization. Think of Egypt and the numbers of people who were communicating with each other uh, through the internet and how it was so important for the Egyptian government to turn off access to the internet at crucial points during these revolutions so that young people would not be able to communicate and organize with each other. So just think of the world as it's changing that we not only have a capacity to reason, and deliberate, and agree on global rules, we have a capacity for empathy with each other that extends, in this case as human beings, to people we have never met, and we've got a capacity now, through technological advance, to communicate with each other. And these seem to me to be the basis on which we can move ahead for the future. I I read, uh, when I was in my period of uh, reflection, Uh, I read Gladstone, former Prime Minister of of Britain, in a debate with Tennyson, the great poet. And many of you may know that for the Olympics in 2012, they've chosen lines from Tennyson as the motto for the Olympics, to seek, to strive, to fight and not to yield. And Tennyson will be very much uh, there when people go to the London Olympics in 2012. But Tennyson, towards the end of his life in the 1880s, uh, became very pessimistic about the world's future. And he wrote a poem called, O Cosmos Chaos, O Chaos Cosmos, Where Will It All End? Hardly an optimistic view of the the future. And Gladstone, who was Prime Minister at the time, wrote to Tennyson and then wrote an article in the 19th century, which was a cultural magazine in our country. And you don't hear of many Prime Ministers having that cultural uh, uh, ability to, to do that sort of thing as he did. And he wrote this article and he said, but you, Tennyson, you wrote a poem 60 years ago called Loxley Hall. And now you've written a poem called Loxley Hole 60 Years After, in which you're totally pessimistic. But in 60 years ago, you had this great poem that said, dipped into the future as far as I could see and saw a vision of the world and the wonder it could be. And in that poem, Tennyson had proposed the parliament of man, which is what the United Nations is often called by people. And Gladstone was saying, yeah, it's easy to be pessimistic. And this is a time when I think people are more pessimistic than they need to be about the future but be optimistic because of what was achieved in these last 60 years and the idea of progress that is built in to your original uh, poetry. And I would, say, I would say that we should heed the words of Gladstone when thinking about the way ahead, to be optimistic about the future. My final story uh, comes from John F. Kennedy, who was president of the United States and who gave this famous inauguration address 50 years ago in Washington. Uh, And a few weeks ago, I was asked by Harvard University to to, to read for the Kennedy Library some of the words from that, and they got people from all over the world to compile a new version of this great inauguration address that Kennedy gave in the 1960s. And there were these great words, for example, the torch has passed to a new generation. Well, I know something about that. And then there was these other uh, great, uh, great words, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then there was these other great uh, words, never negotiate from fear, never fear to negotiate his view of how international relations might be conducted in the future. "If uh, If you cannot save the many who are, if you cannot help the many who are poor, you cannot save the few who are rich. Richard Nixon was his defeated opponent, and he was actually asked, which of the great words from the Kennedy speech would you like to have given? And he replied, the only words from that Kennedy speech I would like to have given, he said, was, I hereby accept the office of President of the United (laughs) States of America. But I was asked to to read some some words. And there is another phrase in this about divided we will surely fail, united. And then it goes on, we can abolish poverty, hunger, conflict, and war. And these were great words uh, about the future. I think we should be optimistic. I think we've got to recognize we're in a new world where there are global problems that are uniquely... Uh, global and need global solutions. I believe we've got to build the international institutions that are necessary to solve these problems, otherwise we will be in continuous financial crises that will repeat themselves, will not solve the problem of the environment, and inequality will stalk our world, and it will be a scar on the soul of our uh, country and the continent for many years to come. I believe that we can solve these problems. It's said that when Cicero spoke to people in ancient Rome, People used to come up to him afterwards and say, great speech, but it's said when Demosthenes spoke in ancient Greece, and they had this great oratory, they came up to him and said, not great speech, they said, let's march. And I think we should be marching for justice, and I believe it is possible to build a better world through global solutions to global problems and global institutions that work, but they've got to be built on an ethic of responsibility. Thank you very much.
0: We've got uh, 15 minutes for questions. Uh, when you're uh, asking a question, do, do please introduce yourself, and do please uh, focus your question on the topic of the lecture. This is not mastermind uh, for previous members of governments. This is uh, a Gifford lecture, and we have a question at the back, please, if you take the microphone there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, George Lerner, and uh, thank you very much for coming to the university. Uh, in your speech, it, it just sounds like another go-around with the notion of the white man's burden. I mean, we've heard of this for the last 30 years. Uh, even Wolfowitz have said, spoke your words. And it would seem that it would be nice if we could get past this problem and actually talk realistically about what we should do.
1: I'm sorry if you don't feel that way. I'm
0: here. He says, it seems like a little go around on white man's burden, and we've heard this sort of stuff for the last 30 years.
1: Well, I think think, uh, the white man's burden, you're talking about our responsibilities to Africa and to the developing countries. I I think uh, sometimes we underestimate what has happened in the last 30 years. You know, if someone had said to me when I was a student at Edinburgh University, and the principal rightly says I caused a lot of trouble uh, over South African (laughs) shares, if someone had said to me that within uh, uh, 20 years you'll have seen the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela will be free but also president uh, of uh, South Africa, you would see the end of the Cold War, Uh, you'll see democracy in countries that never experienced democracy before, You'd see the world agreeing on debt relief. You'd see millennium development goals set where the world accepted a responsibility. And then you'd see revolutions in the Middle East where people said that democracy was not what people wanted in the Middle East, quite the opposite, that you'd end up with a theocratic regime uh, with a repeat of Iran in countries like Egypt. And that is not happening, and it has not happened yet. Now, these are huge changes that have taken place, and I think uh, we have escaped the burden of uh, uh, colonialism and imperialism, in a way that we have accepted a responsibility uh, to those people who are poorer than ourselves. But I believe that the economic odds are still stacked, as I said, against Africa. But the only way to deal with that is to empower people in Africa by international action on their their side. Now, over these uh, last, you know, there's a great story told about Richard Nixon. In 1959, Richard Nixon went to Ghana for the independence celebrations in Ghana. Nkrumah was becoming uh, president of Ghana and there was these great uh, celebrations taking place and Richard Nixon arrived vice president of the United States of America, didn't know what to say to people when they were there. All these uh, black men and women in the front row and he walked down thinking he would talk to them. And he walked down in his rather gauche way and he said, shook hands with some first person, and said, how does it feel to be free? And, And then his next person, how does it feel to be free? And then he met the third person, he said, how does it feel to be free? And this guy said, how should I know? I come from Alabama. (laughs) And of course, Africa in 1960 was politically emancipated. But as you know, civil rights came to America in 1966. But the economic and social rights that would empower Africa have never followed from the political rights that they got at the time of independence. And I'm saying the odds against Africa and against some of the developing countries, particularly some of the climate change hit countries, are so big that you've got to see it as a global problem. You have got to work on the side of people who need opportunity and who need the investment in their infrastructure, their education, and everything else. But it, and if you don't do that, then you have a global problem uh, that will uh, be insusceptible to the sort of solutions we need. I went to a school in Nigeria, Abuja, and in that school in Nigeria, I was there with Bono, who was a pop singer, uh, and uh, he, was, uh, he was asking the kids what they wanted to be. So he's talking to the kids, and he's the first kid said he wanted to be an engineer, and then teacher, and the next one to be a doctor, and the next one to be a scientist. All the kids had great, great ambitions in this school. Bono was very disappointed that nobody wanted to be a pop singer. Uh, I was pretty more sanguine when people said they didn't want to be a politician. Uh, And the fact of the matter was that that school had kids with huge ambition, but had the most dilapidated conditions. You could imagine, corrugated iron roof that was falling apart, kids three to a desk, lots of kids just sitting on the floor, no computers, even in a computer age. And then someone told me, up the road in Abuja in Nigeria, they had set up what was called a madrasa, a school that was being run by an extreme Islamic sect. And they were offering free education, the best of facilities, and kids were just drifting from the school that was dilapidated, that was run by aid money, uh, to that school that was being financed by some Muslim extremists. And that is the sort of problem that develops if we do not put ourselves on the side of uh, developing countries, and particularly the people of developing countries in Africa. So I would say The world is in the right place supporting Millennium Development Goals. We've got to have a new economic strategy that supports Africa and particularly uh, the poorest countries in Africa. It cannot be done by Africa alone. When I explain to you the gaps between rich and poor that exist, but it can be done by the world working together to make it happen. I hope that's a fair answer to your question. Very
0: good. We have a question there. No, next one up. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm going to be biased against people who look like university. Four people who look like University of Edinburgh students.
1: Um, so if you want to ask a
0: question, try and look like one.
1: <laughs> I hope I look like a student enough, Emma Saunders. Um, I'm sorry if I hijack your um, lecture right now, but you talk about marching and you talk about progress, and I think I would like a little bit of reflection on the national. And so sort of if you talk about this whole international scale, what do you think is, uh, is happening in the UK right now? Because that's where your experience is. And I would like you to reflect maybe on the marches happening or on the idea of progress um, that the government is sustaining. And that yeah. seems quite counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I should have said at the beginning that uh, I'd learned during my uh, period in, uh, in uh, frontline uh, politics Uh, the words that uh, uh, Shelley used about his mother-in-law who was a great speaker at one time. He said that uh, she had lost the art of communication, but not, alas, the gift of speech. Uh, And that that is the problem that sometimes happens to politicians of all parties. Look, look, put put the United Kingdom in the, the context. We've seen the biggest economic changes the world could have seen. We'll look back 50 years from now and we will say, that we have been living through the biggest economic changes that the world has ever seen since the Industrial Revolution. You are living through these at the moment because what we've seen is 2 billion people added to the economies of China and India and Asia. For the first time last year, for the first time in nearly 200 years, Europe and America were now out-produced and out-manufactured and out-invested and out-traded by the rest of the world, mainly China, India, Asia, Brazil, Russia, And that is a huge sea shift shift that is taking place. Uh, We have never been in a position in the industrial years uh, when uh, Europe and America, with only 10% of the population, has anything less than a majority of the world's manufacturing production. But in the next 10 years, we're going to see an even bigger change taking place and even faster. And that is the same people who are workers in in Asia, China, India, and so so on, in all these countries, two billion more people, they will become not just producers, but consumers as well. And so the biggest change that will affect us all directly is that you've got a world economy where there's two billion consumers, middle class uh, consumers in China, India and Asia, wanting to buy consumer goods. And the question will be whether Britain, America, the rest of Europe will be able to produce goods for that market or whether that market will simply produce for itself. And when I say that that market, consumer market, is going to be twice the size of the American market, which has always been the largest consumer market in the world in the last century, then you will see the scale of the changes that is happening. Now, either we will produce the value-added, the knowledge-driven, the technology products and services, the custom-built goods that people will want to buy in the most populous parts of the world, or we will fall behind. That is the issue for the future. And that's why I've always said that we had to invest in science and technology. And that's why I've always said that if you don't invest in education and therefore you can't produce these value-added goods of the future, then you risk the livelihood of the next generation that's coming up. And that's why I say when people talk about coming out of the financial crisis and returning to a new normalcy, I say to people that we're in a period of transition that is not yet completed. And when that period of transition is happening, we have got to equip ourselves for the big challenges of the future. And this is the argument that should be not just used in Britain, America, uh, but also in Europe, that you can't afford uh, not to invest in education, and you can't afford not to invest in science and technology. So my message to America and Europe is that unless we invest in the future, it is absolutely certain that the biggest consumer markets in the world will be met by consumer demand being provided from within Asia and not from Europe and America. And yet, we are the most inventive countries. We're the most creative countries. Our freedom of speech and our freedom of assembly and our freedom for people to think as they wish to think means that we're entirely uh, dependent now on our creativity, which is at a very high level. And that is what we should be building on for the future. We will not compete on mass manufacturing, because China pays $400 a month in wages. Vietnam pays $100 a month in wages, but we can compete on skills, and education, and science, and technology, and innovation. And so I'm not going to get involved in the uh, day-to-day details of uh, domestic politics at this stage, because I want to talk about the the arguments about the future. But if I was uh, equipping this country for the future now, I would be saying we've got to invest in education, in science, and technology. And to fail to back the students of this country, as well as to back the science and creativity of this country, is a failure to equip ourselves for the future that has got to be addressed by us making these bold decisions about what is best for us.
0: Hi,
1: I'm Miriam, I'm a student. Um, you talk about creating global institutions, but um, how can we do that when really powerful countries like the United States and China tend to favor, tend not to want to be constrained by these global institutions, and often just refuse to participate? Well, that, that's that's a fair point. The international institutions need to need to work uh, uh, better, and therefore they need the countries that are part of them to to to, to cooperate. Look. When we had the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, the only way we could get through it was to get countries to come together. So we formed a new organization, the G20. Uh, it was originally started by finance ministers, and as you probably know famously, they're not very good at counting. And there were actually 26 countries in this G20, not 20. <laughs> so it's actually the G20 made up of 26 uh, countries. And they came together in London in April 2009 and then in Pittsburgh in, in October. And they decided that one, we would take all the action that was necessary. It was a trillion dollar support for the world economy to stop us moving from recession to depression because all the trends were we were going exactly the way of the 1930s. But we also agreed there that we would go for uh, uh, growth for the future, so we'd grow out of recession and we sought out the global financial system. Now, I agree with you that the minute the pressure of the crisis uh, was was, was removed, in other words, people felt the economy was starting to recover, uh, then it became more difficult to persuade people to cooperate uh, for the future. But look, if China were to increase its consumption, in other words, people were going to uh, be taken out of poverty, people were going to get into middle class uh, 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 lifestyles, and therefore people were spending more in China, because China Produces almost twice as much as, well, three times as much as it's consuming. If China increased its domestic uh, consumer demand, if the rest of Asia, apart from India, did so likewise, if India allowed foreign goods to come into its uh, country and therefore uh, got the prices down for goods that uh, poor people have got to buy in India, if at the same time America and Europe were able to invest more in, in the education and the science and technology for the future and if we had a global deal that that could could happen because it would benefit the growth rate of the world economy and create lots of jobs, then that would be to the benefit of the world economy. So our job is to persuade people not to be protectionist and nationalist but to cooperate. Now we saw it could happen in 2009. We saw it over debt relief for the poorest countries in 2005. We saw it over the Millennium Development Goals which mean that 40 40 million more children are already at school and maternal mortality and infant mortality has fallen. But we've got to see it on a bigger scale. And I'm saying this evening that you don't just need elites talking to elites for there to be global cooperation. You need people talking to people in different countries and people subscribing to an ethic of cooperation that they say and press political leaders that They must see beyond the narrow nationalism and protectionism that prevents the cooperation that's necessary. So I'm putting forward the idea uh, that, yes, we need to cooperate more effectively, but there are ways and means that we can do it. And it's not now simply foreign ministers talking to foreign ministers. It's people talking to people. And you can play a role in making that happen. Indeed, millions of people are members of global NGOs at the moment. And your presence and your uh, uh, pressure can make a huge difference.
0: Very good. Oh. Yeah. Well, oh, okay, go on. All right. No, well, no, wait, you'll, get, you'll be next. Okay.
1: <laughs> Sorry, uh, quickly, my name's Anna Maria. Um, I'm also a student here.
0: More on the theme of um, international organizations. What kind of vision do you have for,
1: because I see them, you know, G20s and well, the G20, the United Nations, um, the IMF, the WTO, all of these organizations um, operating rather independently of each other. And it seems to me that with a lot of these global problems, you're gonna have a lot of left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and there's, you know, the environment, poverty, different things going on at different scales. And I was wondering if you had a vision for cooperation at that level. Thank you very much. I mean, I I think what you're saying is sometimes the problem seems so big that it doesn't seem possible that these international organisations are working or could work effectively. And I think, you know, in 1948 when we created the United Nations, I think people thought of one global assembly, one global coordinating body, uh, one global executive, the Security Council, and it would be able to solve a host of global problems. And I think we've learned since then that you've got a multiple number of institutions that operate at a global level. The World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the International Labour Organization, all these different organizations. So you're not talking about simply multilateralism. You're talking about multi-multilateralism. The UN side by side with a lot of organizations that have got to be strengthened for the future. And I repeat, if we don't do that, we have global problems that will not be solved to the detriment of people's standards of living, their security, and their quality of life in relation to the environment. But my complaint at the moment is we've got what you might call (laughs) mini-lateralism. We've got very little effective international cooperation for dealing with the environmental problem, uh, for dealing with some of the security and terrorism problems, and of course, for dealing with some of the uh, financial problems that have emerged from the global financial crisis. And I believe we should be thinking of a multi-multilateralism, a number, number of institutions, but they've got to have democratic accountability. So you've got to work through nation states, uh, so that they are the mechanism by which international institutions are eventually held accountable. Uh, that's why I come to the G20. The G20 at the moment is these 26 countries, as I've said, coming round a table to talk about general economic uh, issues. And when they went to Seoul in uh, South Korea only a few uh, months ago, they couldn't reach uh, an agreement uh, on the exchange rate uh, problem in China. Uh, and therefore it affected uh, our ability to get a global growth agreement, which is what we wanted uh, to do. But the G20 is just these countries. You need other countries feeling that they're represented in this organization. So you're going to have to create some sort of constituency system, some sort of affiliation, so that each country, poor uh, or small uh, or tiny, in fact, can feel that they are represented through a constituency in which they have a voice, they have a part to play. So it may be, in the end, there's only 26 people around the table, but 192 countries will be represented through a constituency affiliation system. And that's really the future for an international political organization dealing with economic issues that has some democratic uh, credibility and accountability. So we ought to think of a a multiple number of uh, multilateral institutions that can bring global solutions to global problems.
0: We have a question here, third row.
1: Hi, sorry, my name is Max Kremer. I wanted to ask, um, you specifically held up examples like the IMF and WTO as examples of what we should be working towards in an international community with these large organizations. And then you went on to talk about the poverty in Africa, and I thought that was an interesting connection to make considering the criticism that's been leveled against the WTO and IMF by a number of economists that suggested that these two organizations and their enforcement of free market economics combined with the uh, state farming subsidies in Europe has actually caused a lot of economic uh, difficulties in Africa. I want to know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, the tragedy of Africa, and many people will know this, that Africa is this uh, great uh, country of a massive size uh, which has got large tracts of uh, uncultivated land. And Africa is at the moment a net importer of food and not a net exporter. In other words, Africa has the ability not only to feed itself, but to feed the world uh, by its uh, agricultural productivity and by the green revolution that people like Kofi Annan are trying to bring to Africa. But at the moment, because of the way the trading system works and because of the way agricultural productivity is so poor, Africa is importing more of its food than it's exporting. Now, that is the first thing, I think, where you need new uh, and high levels of investment to build greater levels of agricultural productivity. And you see in projects like in Tanzania, that they can treble the rate of uh, produce uh, from the same amount of land, simply by the most basic irrigation and other uh, other techniques. Uh, That's the first thing. The the second thing is, you're absolutely right also, Africa has been starved of the finance it needs. So there are less roads in Africa now than in the 1980s. One in four people in Africa don't have uh, have the electricity they, they, they need. We've got mobile phones in Africa, 500 million mobile phones now, uh, but only 1% of access to the broadband that is essential for it to be a, a business and educational and health uh, uh, service coming through the internet and through, through broadband. So Africa needs a very high level of investment, and it's, I think, our duty as the rest of the world to make sure that as people are plowing the money into Asia, probably 20 trillions will go into Asia infrastructure investment in the next 10 years, A large amount of that is given by incentives and by other means uh, for investment in Africa. So uh, yes, the international organizations like the WTO have not historically served Africa well. We have the DOA round, which is supposed to be the development round for world trade, and it has not reached an agreement. We're in danger of having the first trade deal that has failed since 1948. Uh, If we can actually sign a deal, then it is to the benefit of the developing countries. And I think this is the first trade deal that has got a chance of being of huge benefit to developing countries. But more has got to be done. And when I describe the inequalities that exist... Look, in Africa, there is one doctor for every 39,000 people in a country like Niger. There is one doctor for every 390 people in America. There is one nurse for every 100 people in America and Britain there's one nurse for every 6,000 people in a country like Niger. When I talked to the president of Sierra Leone a few months ago, he told me that for a country the size of Scotland, 6 million people, he had 100 doctors only. He had 200 nurses. And when they trained them, they went elsewhere because they weren't going to be paid sufficiently because he hadn't sufficient funds. There were only 80 midwives. And Sierra Leone had one mother in eight dying in childbirth. Where in Britain, a country like us, it's about one mother in 3,000. And these are the massive inequalities that have got to be dealt with. But they can't be dealt with simply by relying on African resources alone. Uh, We've got to make our contribution in backing up the solution to this global problem uh, with the resources of America and uh, Europe and the rest of the world. It is a huge task. And if we exaggerate what we've achieved, uh, which is high growth rates in Africa, 40 million children at school, Maternal mortality down from half a million a year to 350,000 a year. Infant mortality reduced in many countries. If we exaggerate what we achieve, we will fail to notice that these gaps in opportunity and in life chances are so huge that they cannot be bridged in one generation or two generations without extraordinarily (laughs) difficult and dramatic action on the part of the richest countries of the world. We'll take our last two questions
0: on the north side. 7 Correll from The Guardian. Um, Mr. Brown, you appear to be um, implicitly, even explicitly, criticizing the UN and all the myriad bodies in the UN. Are you saying that they have failed, or are you saying they need to be replaced, or are you arguing for a parallel parallel set of institutions? that are going to replicate a lot of the work they're already doing.
1: I'm not criticising any particular individuals, and I'm not saying that the UN is going to be the only organisation that can solve problems. What I'm saying is that as we've seen the century develop from the 1940s to now, we've seen that you've got to have a number of different institutions that deal with separate problems. Uh, So uh, uh, I'd be grateful if you didn't misquote me on on, on this. I'm actually saying saying we need the institutions reformed for a new age which is a global age and not simply the age of separate nationalities uh, which have not been able to come together to recognize there are global problems. So yes, I would reform the World Bank and yes, I would reform the IMF and yes, I would reform the UN and the Security Council arrangements and yes, I would reform the G20. Uh, but the important thing is that there are a number of institutions that are capable of solving these uh, problems. They were built for another age. They've got to be rebuilt uh, for this, uh, this new age.
0: We've a question up there. Yes.
1: Hello, Mr Brown. I just want to say thank you very much for your talk. It's very enlightening. My name is John Park. I'm a medical student here. I wanted to... Um, you mentioned in your talk that um, uh, global problems need global solutions, and global solutions need global institutions. Uh, What we want to know is whether you'll be standing as the new IMF head. (laughs) It's not the... (laughs) You know, I'm I'm pretty busy at the moment. I'm doing... uh, (laughs) I've had my period of reflection. I'm actually uh, chairing the Global Campaign for Education, and we're about to produce a a major report about how far short we are of uh, reaching the Millennium uh, Development Goals. There are still 70 million children who don't go to school today. It's an incredible figure for the world of 2011, that today 70 million children are not able to go to school because there's no school for them to go to. And we're finding uh, that that number could increase uh, because of decisions that are being made in different countries at the moment not decrease over the next few years. And we're finding, amazingly, that we're short of more than a million teachers uh, around the world. So whatever is happening in individual countries around the world uh, and the hiring of teachers, the world itself is short of more than a million teachers and we're finding also that only half the classrooms in Africa that are needed have actually been uh, built uh, and so there is an astonishing gap in what we have said should happen and what is actually happen that we've got to play uh, a role in, uh, in filling and I'm working on that and on many other things where I think Uh, a a contribution can be made uh, by working with a number of people who are interested in the same areas. And you'll see that every NGO that you know, from Oxfam and Christian Aid and Save the Children uh, to all the different education campaigns are working under this umbrella of the global campaign for education. Uh, And this report that I'm proud to be the the chairman of uh, delivering uh, will be presented to the the G20, uh, and we will ask the G20 to take seriously the need uh, to uh, invest in but also to make provision for Uh, the training of teachers, the building of classrooms, the provision of internet and broadband in those areas where education can leap a a technological, take a technological leap by using the internet where we don't have books and don't have other materials. And these are things that are practical things that we can actually do in the next uh, few years. So these are the things I'm working on. Good. I have a
0: question here. Use the microphone, please. Thank you. You to, to have yeah. um, global institutions
1: where African people can actually defend their um, views of what is good or not good for them and not people like yourself in Africa. Um, you've mentioned the democratic um, accountability that is lacking in organizations such as the WTO. So how would you propose to um, have a, a real parliament of men where African people are actually well-represented. Yeah, well represented. yeah I, think, I think Tennyson might have written the poem di- differently if it had been ni- 2011. I mean, I meant the parliament of uh, uh, men and women. Uh, if <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, the global campaign for education is, uh, yes, I'm cheering this group, but I'm cheering it jointly with Gresha Michelle, uh, who is the wife of Nelson Mandela. Uh, and there are many people who are representing both Africa and India, Amartya Sen is the Nobel Prize winning uh, writer who went to India only a few weeks ago and said to the Indians when they were presenting them with an award at the parliament, uh, thank you for the award, but you're not doing very well in getting educational opportunity to children in India because there's eight million children in India, not at school. So I, I would I would say to you that you're absolutely right in the point you made. This is not uh, a Western form of uh, a, a new imperialism. This This is us responding to and doing uh, uh, having representation from, and the highest, uh, the highest level from people uh, from uh, uh, Africa and the developing countries, and at the same time consulting widely with organisations that are on the ground in Africa. And you know, recently I visited uh, uh, Uganda. I'm about to go to uh, Mozambique and to South South Africa. I hope to also visit Rwanda. So before we finish this report uh, for the G20 in November. Uh, we will be listening to the voices of, of people just like these kids I talked to you about in uh, Abuja in Nigeria who you can see have got all the potential but none of the opportunities that they, they should they should have so I take the point that you're making in fact, I would argue something else uh, and uh, this is my experience that it is women that are going to change Africa if you look around African leadership at the moment, people like Ellen Johnson in liberia we 've had a Mozambique has had a woman prime minister. Many of them countries have uh, women finance ministers. But if you look at microcredit, if you look at education, if you look at health, it is women that are taking the lead. I went to a town meeting in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And it was a town meeting of all the population of the area. They all came together for a town meeting. And it started off with the what you might call the elders, the men, uh, trying to control the agenda. But I tell you, within half an hour, uh, the issues of water and health and education we're then controlling the agenda because the women of the district had brought this up and said, we're not listening to what the men are saying on these issues. we are taking over this, this debate. And that is what is happening in many parts of Africa. and I would say this generation will be a generation of women leaders who will be the key people to solving the major problems that Africa has. And I think mm-hmm. on to vote of one more
0: question oh, yeah. Very good. So we have a question over here. Where where's he gone? Yeah. Uh,
1: Julie from the School of Law. Uh, with a growing population, I was wondering um, whether uh, there would be conflicts with human rights. Surely um, we have the right to life, to have a family, fair trial. Would there be conflicts um, between them? Yeah, I I think that the the problem about delineating rights uh, and finding uh, global agreement on them, as well as the problem with responsibilities and finding global agreement on that, is that essentially, uh, first of of all, uh, we can agree uh, on the right that nobody be tortured, but it will be difficult to agree, for example, in every culture and every country, that corporal punishment is part of torture. It's these sort of questions of detail that then arise from a basic agreement on on rights. And we can agree on uh, general responsibilities that people have, but to get to the specific uh, requires debate, dialogue, discussion, a willingness to engage in an argument, and then to reach a conclusion. Uh, And in in this uh, this world, it's very important to recognize uh, that unless you have countries and people in countries debating with each other about what they mean uh, by even the most general statements of rights and responsibilities, uh, you don't get uh, to something that is uh, s- more than abstract uh, support for a particular uh, idea. So I'm not interested in moral ser- sermonizing, and I'm not interested in, in, in platitudes. I'm interested in how you can build uh, a statement of rights and responsibilities that would underpin the development of global institutions uh, uh, for, for, the, for, for the future. Uh, I- I'm really saying that this evening that I've learned from my own experience uh, that we can talk about uh, national governments doing this and that and they can do things that are incredibly important, just as local government can do things that are incredibly important. But unless we recognize that there are some problems that cannot be solved without us cooperating with other countries, we will actually be deluding people into believing uh, that there is an easy solution uh, to some of the problems that, that, that we face. And therefore, it's incredibly important that, uh, that we recognize the need to cooperate uh, across uh, uh, borders. Uh, you've been a very uh, patient audience uh, this evening. I remember I used to go around some of the, uh, the, the universities in Scotland and do, do speeches and it was said if a lecturer came into a lecture hall at, at, at Edinburgh uh, uh, University uh, and uh, said good morning to the class, uh, he would missiles would be thrown at him, paper missiles would be thrown at him to bring him uh, down to earth. But if the lecturer went to um, uh, uh, Aberdeen University and said good morning, the class would reply good morning sir. And if you went to Glasgow University, and you said good morning, they would actually write it down. Just to conclude with one, one story, uh, Olaf Palme was the Swedish prime minister. And he was interested in the development issues that we've been talking about this evening. Uh, and uh, he got a chance to meet Ronald Reagan when he was president of the United States of America. And, Palmy, who was a well-known social democrat, went to the White House to meet Reagan. And Reagan said to his officials before he arrived, he said, isn't this man a communist? And his official said, no, Mr. President, he's an anti-communist. And Ronald Reagan said, I don't care what kind of communist he is. <laughs> and uh, Reagan asked Olive Palmy, he said, well, what do you believe? Do you want to abolish the rich? And Palmy replied, no, he said, I want to abolish the poor. I want everyone to have the chance to realize the potential to the fool. And I do think if we look around the world, there are people who share that view of how this world should develop, indeed, as the only way that this world can develop. And I hope that uh, speaking here at Edinburgh University, which has got great international traditions which uh, reverberate right across the world and you should be very proud of, we can send out a message uh, from here in-, in Edinburgh that we want to be part of building a new international economic order for the future. And it is possible, because when we say something is impossible, it usually actually becomes possible and happens. And that's been the experience of the last 30 years, and I believe it will be the experience of the next 30 years. Thank you for being such a good audience.
0: Chair of the Gifford committee, um, it's it's really um, a pleasure to propose a vote of thanks. That was an absolutely exemplary Gifford lecture. Um, Something I found immensely attractive about it was the humor. Um, Anybody who has met Gordon um, knows that the Doerr Scott that you read about in the newspapers is is a fiction. He is a very warm, very amusing person. We saw it at the lecture. Those of us who have the privilege of engaging uh, with Sarah and Gordon in the, the visionary Jennifer Brown the laboratory that they uh, support in this university see it too. So w- wonderful humor. In terms of uh, our university, I mean, th- th- such a clear embodiment of enlightenment values, such a clear commitment to the higher purposes of education. And I have, I have to be honest with you, Gordon, the, G- the Gifford Committee w- were not entirely sure. Uh, whether, uh, you know, a recently lapsed politician could, could w- w- was appropriate um, for the, the, the Giffords with, with, a, with its uh, very particular tradition. And I have to say, and uh, uh, Professor Jay Brown is going to be nodding in a moment, or well, he's nodding now, so there's a bit of precognition, but I, do, I think what was really admirable was the very strong sense of moral purpose that came through. Um, in relation to the Millennium Development Goals, in re- relation to the position of people who are around the world disadvantaged by poverty or by health issues or other, a very, very strong uh, moral purpose, underpinned by quite <coughs> exemplary and careful analysis of historical events. And finally, um, I think the thing that was really very important in the lecture was there there was reason and there was rationality and there was moral purpose, but there was also hope and optimism. And I really want us to thank you most warmly for all of that.
1: This production is Copyright, the University of Edinburgh.